0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Heart of Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Pyle Coley, and I'm joined today by my two favorite co-hosts, Dr. Suzanne Barron and Dr. Hari Naidu. Hey guys.
1: Hey, how you doing? Hey.
0: So if you missed last week's episode, you should definitely listen to it when you can, because it was a really good one. Suzanne shared her very personal story, which was incredibly moving. And we talked in general about infertility and why it is so common in medicine. So as you can imagine, it was a bit of a serious and heavy topic. Since last episode, we showed you some of the downsides of being in medicine. We thought this week we would lighten it up and show you that doctors do get in a few laughs and a little bit of fun in their medical journeys. So today we're going to start by telling you our crazy call night stories from our training and talking about whether or not doctors really hook up in the call rooms during call, like you see on TV. So hurry, for our non-medical listeners, can you give us a quick primer into what being on call means?
1: Yeah, so for those uh, who don't know, being on call essentially means that in a periodic basis, either every three nights or four nights, and some rotations even more frequently, you have to spend the night in the hospital. So this is an unusual situation for a lot of people, but essentially during the night you have to take care of patients. You have you may have a large service, but the certain people that are there with you overnight, all the other residents, and so it almost forms a little community at night. You always know who else is on call and who you'll see, you know, night to night. And so there's a lot of stuff that can happen during that time. Um, a lot of it being very stressful, but also during that time you end up getting to know people very well. So that can continue throughout life in that, uh, depending on the job you do, and we're all cardiologists on this, you may be on call uh, more frequently or continuing for the next 10 to 20, 30 years. Suzanne and I are doing what's called heart attack call or STEMI call. And that entails us being available to come in in the middle of the night. And so this continues to go on. But during residency in particular, it's a very interesting time because we're all learning. uh, We're all still trying to figure out, how to get this done and how to take care of patients while we're all trying to still interact with each other. So that's basically what call is.
0: Uh, thanks, sorry. And I find it so fascinating that the word resident actually originated from the fact that back in the day, the doctors, when they were in training, would actually live in the hospital. There were residents in the hospital and there was a, a residential wing of many hospitals where the doctors would be living so you know being on call does sometimes feel like you're stuck you're living in the hospital sometimes you know 30 hours at a time potentially even longer
1: yeah so, there's all these call rooms right so you have different call rooms for different people just a little side thing when i was walking through the hospital uh last week i noticed a little uh a little kiosk that showed a lot of the history of medicine and nursing and there was a sign that said married quarters this way so I'm like, what is this married quarters? <laughs> I guess I guess there's an area where if you are married, I guess your spouse can go. Um, but that's the first time I ever saw that. Okay, it into what you said.
0: No, that's fascinating because you know the call room at Brigham and Women's Hospital where I did my residency was a essentially, you know, sometimes bunk beds. So you would have a roommate that you share it with, usually a single. Uh, it you know it just would basically be a bed, a desk, and a computer, so you could put in orders and such. And then there would be shared kind of restrooms with showers and kind of a locker area if you wanted to store anything. But I wonder if the married call rooms potentially had bigger beds or what have you, because two people could sleep in the same, perhaps.
1: Well, if they're married, they may have two separate beds.
0: Ah, interesting. Yeah. Well, that might be a dysfunctional marriage then. That's you? right. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: All right, guys. So now that we know what call is, I'm going to
2: start with you, Suzanne. I want you to tell me your funniest call night story. So I think my craziest night story. Uh, it was when I was an intern. Um, and when I was an intern uh, uh, on the medicine service, it would be me alone overnight taking care of up to 20 uh, medicine patients. And uh, right before my call night started and during the day, a patient was admitted uh, who was pregnant. Uh, she was nine months pregnant and she had syncopized. We had fainted. Uh, she had been evaluated by OB um, uh, down in the emergency room. And they said, you know, everything was fine with the baby, fine with her. She was just being admitted for workup of her fainting episode. And so uh, as my attending was leaving for the day, he turned to me and said, Suzanne, make sure she doesn't give birth on this floor. And I said, okay, I'm going to do that. I got that. Uh, so about two or three in the morning, um, you know, she was totally fine. I went in, I assessed her; she was totally fine. And about two or three in the morning, uh, I was called by the nurse to go and see her. And um, in chatting with her, she uh, she actually she was not a primary English speaker, but we did uh, did find somebody to interpret for us. And she told me that she was having abdominal cramping that was coming on every about five to six minutes. And I was like, well, that that sounds like labor. I mean, I'm no obstetrician, but that that sounds a lot like labor, and so I immediately called uh, the OB service and said, "I'm I'm real concerned here that she's going into labor, and um, she can't do that here on the medicine floor. She needs to go to the labor and delivery ward." And they said, "No, no, no. We saw her in the emergency room. She was fine. She's nowhere near. You know, she's okay. She's not." And I was like, "I'm telling you, I think she's going into labor." And they're like, "She's not." And I'm like, "Oh my God, she's gonna have a baby on the floor." Maybe they'll name her after me. I mean, I'm cool with that. But like on the <laughs> other hand, like I'm also pretty sure my attending will kill me. And I really don't want that to happen either. So I freaked out a little bit. I called my senior resident. My senior resident got, the, uh, you know, gotten horn, And we basically, long story short, you know, I was like, at, at the very least, we need to get a fetal monitor down here and just make sure everything's okay. She's saying she's having abdominal cramping. And even if it's not labor, hashtag, it was. But even if it's not, labor, let's just make sure that the baby is okay. And so a midwife came down with the fetal monitor. Um, and the fetal monitor on the fetus was completely fine, but you know, also speaks with, with this with this patient. She's like, I think she's in labor. I'm like, Yeah, 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 yeah. She's like, She probably shouldn't be on this floor, and I was like, No, 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 no. And I'm in the meantime like telling the poor patient to like close her legs. I'm like, Please don't get birth. Please don't get birth. She's like, I'm gonna get her moved up to labor and delivery. I was like, Okay, medicine will follow her up there. We'll we'll do whatever we need to do. Make sure that you know she had gotten an echo. She had no everything was normal. She had no arrhythmias. All of her labs were okay. Like there was nothing to suggest that her fainting episode. You know, was cardiac and in uh, in nature at that time. Anyway, so they long story short, they rolled they rolled her off the floor. at, I want to say about I don't know two or three in the morning, and I would be very happy to let you know that at six thirty ish in the morning, she gave birth to a very healthy baby girl. And what did they name her? They did not name her Suzanne. I was <laughs> very annoyed by that. But to be fair, I wasn't the one that had actually done the delivery. And when my attendee came in the morning, he was like, So he's like, Hey, how's it going with the you know, you know, the, the, the patient that you know you admitted yesterday afternoon who was pregnant? I was like, Well she had her baby and <laughs> she's
1: no longer pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> know, the good news gosh, is she's no longer pregnant. <laughs>
2: I know. I and I was like, on the labor and delivery floor, everything is okay. And is healthy and she is healthy and we're all good. And he was like, this might be a first for this floor. I was like, yep, 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 it was. And it's clearly something that I remember, gosh, now 18 years later. So I would say that was probably my craziest call night story. I love it, Suzanne. And and it's funny because your your call night story makes you look like
0: such a good doctor I mean, you were there as a medical doctor and you obviously diagnosed that she was in labor, got her plugged in and, and got her, you know, on the right floor right away. But, you know, my crazy calm night stories actually make me look like a bad doctor. So if I share them, you guys have to be sh- promised not to judge me for them. Okay, I make no promises. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right. So I've got two. So the first was like literally the best call night I ever had in my entire career. So, you know, as you guys know, on call nights, you get page after page after page. Sometimes you're getting woken up every half an hour, every 45 minutes. And so you just don't get good uninterrupted sleep. So this was literally the best call night. I went to bed at 930. I woke up at, you know, 615 right before rounds were supposed to start at seven. And You know, I went to the bathroom, I brushed my teeth, I freshened up, I washed my face and I was just like feeling great. I'm like, I had a no hitter. Like I slept through the entire night and I was just ready and I was going to go home at noon and I had all this stuff planned for the afternoon. Then I reached down, I pull out my pager and there's literally like 28 unanswered pages blinking on the pager. (laughs) And it was like patient getting worse patients, blood pressure going down patient in cardiac arrest. And I slept through everything. So I don't know how, but I ended up silencing my pager. So it wasn't vibrating. It wasn't making a noise. It literally just didn't do anything. When the page came in. And I missed everything. And you know, thankfully, all my patients lived through the night and did okay. But it was me being unavailable the entire night. To the team that needed me so i had a good resident who covered and took care of everything but i had some you know answers to give in the morning when I woke up of course needless to say i never did that again i turned up the volume as high as i could but it was just one of those situations where like i just couldn't believe it
1: yeah but it's crazy right i I worry about that at night too that i'm gonna hear the page or not and not a pager anymore it's all the cell phone and right right we live with the distress our entire life Uh, but you you don't want to miss these pages.
2: I, I still have a pager and in part it's because I think I've been so conditioned to, you know, with like the PTSD of it going off that I know I'll wake up to it without a question. But you're right. I worry all the time whenever I'm on call, I'm constantly like waking up every two or three hours, just checking the pager to make sure I didn't like miss anything. Even though, again, I have a pager, I have a cell phone, like, you know, I mean, you know, that's on the highest volume, but it is, it does condition you. Yeah, and I think this
0: was my worst fear realized and it's changed the way that I've been able to sleep on call ever since. Like, I don't think I've ever had a proper night on call and, you know, now I cover my outpatients all the time. So I'm always such a light sleeper, like the smallest little noise is going to wake me up because I don't want to miss the answering services phone call or, or what have you. So that was one story. And the second one was actually one of my, you know, intern nights when I was sharing a room with a roommate. We were in bunk beds and he slept on the top bunk and I was on the bottom and he snored like a runaway train i mean my goodness like it was like the worst snoring you've ever heard in your life and i'm sure that he had obstructive sleep apnea or something like that but it's just one night like i had no pages i just couldn't fall asleep because he's just going on and on and on so i just snuck out of the room got on the computer made up a fake page
1: oh no a
0: fake <laughs> just to give myself like 20 minutes the ball asleep before he came back and started snoring again and it was actually i felt really guilty about it the next day uh but it was perfect it worked like a charm like he had to get up he had to get out of his bed he had to go answer the page and by that time i was already asleep by the time he got back
1: oh my god that's mean
2: <laughs> you know, i just needed the rest it's both mean but ingenious It is not i i mean now we
1: know Thank how you got you. so far
2: that's right <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, guys. So we talked about funny call stories. Now I want to hear, you know, after being awake for a thirty or thirty-six hours in a row with very little sleep or no sleep at all, what was the dumbest thing that you did, either while you were on call or post call the next day?
1: All right, I'm happy to talk about this one. So, you know, I, I trained a long time ago, back before there were really cell phones, you know, showing everything and where everybody is. And so, you know, post call we back then we didn't have this 80 hour work week. So I was, uh, some of these rotations were about a hundred, 110 hours, really crazy. And I'm in Manhattan. I was here. And so after call, it was pretty routine that no, you wouldn't go home and sleep, even though that's what you're supposed to do. We would oftentimes, uh, go out. And I had a lot of friends in Manhattan. So one uh, day post call, I'm like, Oh, I can, I can go hang out afterwards. So I take my car, I drive downtown. I think we were somewhere in Sobo and I park my car and then we go, I have a group of people from college and med school who were in the city at the time, and we went uh, clubbing. So we go clubbing. And then, you know, by this time, it's like 2 a.m., we're done. And we come out, and I cannot remember where my car is at all. And, you know, we don't have these find my phone or find these app, you know, car at this point. This is the 90s, our uh, late 90s. And so literally i couldn't find my car we were traveling we were driving around we were about walking around for hours trying to do this like at least an hour I ended up going back home in a cab and then the next morning i had to go scour all the Soho to find my car so it is by far the dumbest thing i've ever done probably shouldn't have driven that night uh sometimes i do drive and i'll leave my car if i drink but other that night I, i really wasn't even drinking it was just more of a kind of a dance party type of thing so despite being uh you know smart people we can do certainly some dumb stuff
0: I mean, I think it's crazy what you, you say, Hurry, because like the memory issues post-call, you know, sometimes you just even forget the slightest thing. Like you're like, what was I just about to do? You know, it's not even necessarily where you parked or, you know, something more important, but yeah, that kind true. of chronic sleep deprivation really does impact our memory. And I'm sure the the staying up late and clubbing yeah. also not, well, you know, had something to do with it.
1: But you're right. We don't think about it, right? We're like out, we, we leave the car there, whatever it is. And- and you think like your memory will be able to hold that information but then uh, there's no question post call we're not at our best.
2: Suzanne you're up next. Um, So you know again because we're all uh, so back in when I was taking uh, when I was in residency this was kind of right at the start of people having like smartphones and like calendars on their phones and all stuff so I didn't have one of those yet because you didn't really started doing that. So uh, one of my uh, friends from college um, was having a surprise birthday party and a surprise get together, and so that you know, um, I, I came off post call and you know, you know, been on for thirty six hours or something, and I, I came home and I, I was like, I got a rally. It's my buddy. I'm gonna do this. You know, I'm gonna just go out. I'll I'll go out. I'll have you know one drink or just some appetizers and I'll go home and get some sleep. So I go home. I shower. Uh, I go to the bar. We're supposed to meet everybody and uh, I'm sitting there by myself and it's like you know like everyone's supposed to show up at six and you know I actually didn't have um I had like one of those flip phones and I didn't have anybody's number in there except for my friend who I couldn't call and talk and be like hey where is everyone because was supposed to be a surprise party for her <laughs> um and that was the only number I had in my phone I had other things on email but I didn't have access to email on my phone so I'm sitting there and we're supposed to meet and like it's been half hours 45 minutes after we're supposed to show up and I'm like I don't know what's going on. So after like an hour sitting there by myself, trying not to fall asleep or look like a loser, uh, I end up going back home, get on my computer, look at my email and realize that um, the party was actually the next Yay! (laughs) Um, So I was totally that jerk who just completely, completely just screwed up uh, the day. I did make it the next day, told everyone the story. They all laughed and they're like, you're an idiot. And I was like, yeah, 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 I know. But, you know, I was like, I was convinced I didn't know what day it was. And I was convinced that this was the day of the party and I was the person sitting there alone
1: at the bar waiting for a bunch of people to come in and be like, "Where's everyone. I'm sure you found someone at the bar.
2: That's hilarious. I did. That—that's a separate story. <laughs>
0: that's hilarious. I mean, I'm, you're all dressed up, post call, sitting there all alone on the wrong day. <laughs>
2: yep, yep. Alone at the party, nowhere to go. It's fine.
0: <laughs> well, I love it, and hopefully that never happened again, because you started writing down the dates in your calendar on your smartphone once you upgraded. Yes, yes. That—that that has helped uh, immensely for sure.
1: Yeah, without that, I'd be—I'd be lost.
0: So my funny call night story, like post-call story, probably doesn't apply anymore since many of us have gotten rid of pagers. But if you guys recall back in the day, you know, we used to have our own pager and then we would have the code blue pager. You know, that's a pager that goes off when somebody has a cardiac arrest or stops breathing in the hospital. And then sometimes you'd have other pagers, the cross-cover pager, what have you. So you could have three or four pagers sort of hanging off your belt. And always on call, you know, we wear scrubs in the hospital, which is essentially just like pajamas with the tie string sort of thing. So, you know, I'm in the bathroom post-call and I'm, you know, freshening up or whatever. I, I use the restroom. And then one of the pictures was a little bit loose in the, in the holster and it falls into the toilet.
1: Oh, my God.
0: Absolutely, like, God. I have having a professional, moral and ethical dilemma. Like... First of all, the pager's broken. And so, of course, I'm trying to figure out which of the pagers fell into the toilet. Was it the code blue pager? Was it my pager? Was it the cross cover pager? Second, and I want to hear what you guys would do. Do you reach in and take it
1: I'm out? I am am not i i don't know about you, but I'm never shaking Pyle's hand again. That's it.
2: I'll tell you what uh, I did. But I want to hear what you would have done. I mean, I would have reached in and got it. Yeah, you <laughs> just go in and you do that. And then, yeah, you're going to do Suzanne
1: little... and I are plumbers. This is what we do.
2: I couldn't, I I just couldn't. So like I had to let it go.
0: So I figured out which pager it was. It was the cross cover pager. I ran over to the IT office. It was first thing in the morning. Call was just sort of ending. It was like 6.30 in the morning. You know, I called the operator. I got the IT person on call, and I got a new pager issue, But I just could not reach in and take it out. It was like it's—it's just going to kick me while I'm down post call. And I was just like, so from then on, I learned a valuable lesson, which is like you take your pagers off, you put them, you know, near the sink mm-hmm. on the counter, and then you do whatever you're here.
1: Doing. I think that works for cell phones too. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's a good point. If, if, speaking of plumbing, did you also
2: call the plumber?
0: Yeah, and that was the other dilemma. Like, do I flush it and and like no. erase the erase the crime, or do I like you know call some? So that I felt bad about flushing because I said I'm going to probably mess up the whole septic system. So I did have, thankfully, the wherewithal to to call the plumber as well. Called the systems management person, and they got the the you know janitorial plumbing person on staff, and he came and he had like a little net thing, and it was he didn't have to use his hands, so it was great. He just got it out.
1: And,
2: also, well, the well, so long story short is, Hari's, is that you can shake Kyle's hands, That's okay, right. yes. But, yes. N- but not mine. Yes.
1: <laughs> but not yours. God only knows where you've been.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so anyways, now I'm very careful with my pagers and my phones. But all right, guys, so next up, we're going to talk about the craziest case or the craziest medical story from your career and whether you think it could make it into a television script.
1: All right. I got one. So... Um... You know, Suzanne, you're starting at a new place, right? So this is my first week. I left Cornell and I went to Winthrop, which is now NYU uh, Long Island. And the first week uh, I was director of the cath lab now. And, you know, nobody really knew who I was. And it is hard to go to a new place and people have no idea if you're good, if you're, you know, what your attitude is, how you get under pressure. And the first week on call, a patient rolls in is a young woman uh you had a, a patient who was pregnant this patient is pregnant too so as a young woman i think she was like 28 years old uh with twin gestation so she was in her 30 something week of twin gestation um and she had a massive inferior wall uh, uh spontaneous coronary dissection so massive inferior uh, st elevation mi so um you know, it's stressful. And we have the kind of lab there where it's kind of a fishbowl, where it's between multiple labs and everybody can watch. So it's stressful. So I'm doing the case and we had to have OBGYN involved about, you know, radiation protection, how do you do all that and how you do this very quickly, what anticoagulation you can use, what kind of antiplatelet you can use. And bottom line, they said to just go ahead and do what you have to do. So this young lady got a full metal jacket of the right, because I had to open up the vessel uh, and she ultimately did well, went to OBGYN um, and then basically stay in the hospital another eight weeks until end of gestation and, and had delivery. And during that whole process, obviously, uh, there's a lot of stress about the babies. Are they going to be okay? Uh, did they tolerate the MI? So that is by far the craziest that I've had. And, and to this day, that's, uh, now about 15 years ago to this day it's the craziest and most stressful case that I've ever had. Uh, ultimately she delivered both babies and, um and did well and actually when i opened up uh, when i moved to uh westchester and had my um opening here uh we had an opening on long island for an office and and she and the kids came which was amazing so i do think that that could probably be a movie because it's uh kind of a full circle but definitely the most stressful that i've ever had and you know it's it's hard when you're no one knows you and whether you you know and obviously all eyes looking at you but very crazy
2: and it's you're not just treating one patient, you're treating multiple,
1: you know yeah three people it was yeah. believe me, we were all aware of that <laughs> that's
2: incredible. hurry. I mean, what a victory, you know and
0: and a story like that just reminds us again that it's not just that day that we're treating that person, but we're changing the course of their lives,
1: you know, yeah, that's true. You don't think of it at the time, but it's but it is true. yeah.
0: I had one when I was an anesthesia resident for a year at Mass General Hospital where this multi-vehicle trauma came in and it was like a bad accident, you know, and there was just blood everywhere. There's somebody that had their, you know, eyeball dangling from the socket, what have you. So they called every resident in the hospital. They called a code anesthesia and a code trauma, which means any available medical or surgical resident come to the trauma bay to help because they were in over their heads. They just had so many casualties from this accident. And so my friend and I were the anesthesia residents at the time. We ran in there and we were both really tired of what have you. And they were like, people were, the, the patients were bleeding out. So they wanted us to get large bore access, which means put in the biggest IV that you can. And, you know, if a patient is comatose, you can just kind of pop in the IV without any sort of a problem. So we grabbed like these big 14 gauge IVs, like these large, large pipes, essentially, and just started putting in lines and putting in IVs into patients. And I didn't do this, but my friend did. So, so, you know, there's so much chaos, literally. Just imagine the scene. There's just bodies everywhere. There's stuff everywhere. There's people everywhere. There's people reaching over people. And he reaches out and pops an IV into this big, juicy vein. And it turns out the hand belongs to one of the other residents. <laughs> Instead of putting it into the patient, oh my God. he put it into the doctor that was awake, obviously, and tried to do something else. And his hand was just there and just couldn't tell because there were so many people in the mix that it was not the patient's hand. It was the physician's hand. And the guy screams and flings his hand up and slaps somebody in the face. And, you know, because it was a large <laughs> needle that just went into his arm. <laughs> <laughs> It's just, so to me, I was like, this is just sheer chaos. Like you can't even tell who's the patient, who's the doctor. Like that's how you well,
1: probably had the best, that, that person probably had the best veins. That's why.
0: Yeah. And nice and juicy probably because he was like, you know, leaning over. And so they were like on his hand all popping out. And, but it was just, it was at one of those kind of moments where you realize that sometimes our lives are, you know, in a way almost theatrical, like what, what we do on some of these crazy call nights could certainly make it into the movies and be something that, you know, people would make movie scripts about. All right, guys, last topic. I want to know if you or your friends have ever hooked up on call in the call rooms. And, and if so, as much detail as you're comfortable
2: sharing about it. Suzanne. All right. So I'll go on this one. So first of all, I mean, you just started talking about what could show up on TV and things like that. And I think that's an important thing because, you know, certainly some of the stuff we do, I'm like, yeah, that could totally be on TV. But there's definitely things on TV that I don't think are particularly accurate. So for example, in like Grey's Anatomy, when everybody seems to be like looking up in the call room and it's a beautifully well-lit call room with like fresh sheets and, you know, there (laughs) are huddling afterwards for hours on end. I'm like, what hospital is this? Because I don't, again, I don't want to speak for you guys, but like rooms that I was in, they were all bunk beds. There was usually like two bunk beds. So it was four beds. You know, the mattresses are really skinny and crappy and the pillows are horrible. And Lord knows when the sheets were changed last. And so, you know, you got a bunch of interns and residents going in there to nap whenever they can. I mean, it smells not good so the long story short of where i'm going with this is no the rooms are disgusting i did not hook up (laughs) however i I do know that that has happened uh you know folks who you know i obviously i i you know you're in the hospital you do end up having friends and friends you know do every once in a while you know some things will happen i uh I, i remember there was there was uh certainly um uh, a call room that I remember would be kind of, you know, was out of the way. And so there was a, uh, you know, if you, if you hung something outside the door and you knew that no. it was something hanging outside the door, you knew that, that, you know, you might want to wait to go in and go to that bunk bed because you might be walking in on something that you prefer not to. So. Oh, well, let um, me ask you, were there locks on the call room doors? God, I don't think
0: so. Ours did at, at our hospital, they had locks on the call room doors. So people didn't necessarily have to hang anything outside
2: i mean there was a hanging thing i don't remember <laughs> that there were any um i don't remember that there were any locks. again i, I
1: mean, don't remember either on the doors of uh, call rooms no.
2: yeah although again to be fair like i, I really wasn't you know you in there because they're kind of gross and you just want to get in and get some sleep i mean i was like i don't and i actually i know i don't think that there were locks because i also feel like there were definitely kinds like when like you know like a nurse would come in and grab you you know and so if there was a lock to get right. in. So I don't. Maybe the call rooms of the millennials
0: and Gen Zers are going to have locks. There you go. We'll <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll find out. <laughs> well, that's that's very interesting, Suzanne. I would agree. I would say I I personally have never done so, but I've had a lot of friends and colleagues who either met their significant other on call, or, you know, it was it was something that brought them together because in moments of high stress, high emotions, you know. All types of emotions are amplified, and that's what we do when we're on call nights. We have incredibly high levels of stress. All of our emotions are sort of exaggerated because we're sleep deprived, and so even the positive emotions—the love, the affection, the connection—they can really come out. And I mean, I remember I met one of my boyfriends on call, and he was a terrible person, but on call, he was my hero. He literally <laughs> saved my patient. So it was—it was—I was a medical intern, and he was a cardiothoracic surgeon. And I had this patient who was dying end of life, you know, had advanced cancer and had it literally had an abscess in his abdomen, in his belly with pus coming out. And he had these stitches and this, you know, this kind of open wound that the stitches needed to come out and the open wound needed to be sort of re-sutured. And as a medical intern, it, it was out of my league. It was not something that I was qualified to do. And I kept trying to page one surgeon after another from general surgery to come and take care of it. And nobody did. And he was standing on the same nurse's station returning a page when he heard me argue with the general surgery intern and then hang up and say, this patient is dying and you don't even care to come and, you know, do something, you know, that's that would help him feel better at the end of his life. And so he turned to me and he said, you know what, it's not my service, but I'm happy to help with whatever you need on your patient. And he went in there and he took care of my patient. And oh, my goodness, all of a sudden he was a hero. He was the cavalry, you know.
1: And then he asked you out, right?
0: He, then he asked me out, and then we dated, <laughs> and and he became my boyfriend. And my impression of this particular individual was that he was the most caring, sympathetic human being on the planet. Which was actually
1: oh, yeah, ulterior motives.
0: Yes, it was actually the opposite of the truth, and and I realized that a few months later. But it's just interesting how being on call can really color and our experience, what we're looking for on call. Sometimes as somebody to help us or save us or save our patient or whatever, and that can really affect the way that we perceive people, uh, you know, outside and and misunderstand people's incentives.
1: Yeah, you know, I also think that since we spend so much time, your world, our world, you know, residents' worlds become just you know so um, closed, and so you end up seeing the same people, and you don't have that much time outside, so uh, you end up kind of picking from what's available, which is the people you see every day, and they they take on. You know higher roles because of that
0: yeah very much so well guys thank you so much for sharing and today you know we have shared some of our most memorable call night stories and and some of the things that i know will stay with us through our entire careers and memories that we'll hold on to for the rest of our lives but i know that every doctor out there and every healthcare provider has these types of stories that they hold on to So next episode, we will be discussing whether or not doctors should unionize. And this really comes on the heels of medical residents at multiple major hospitals, including uh, Massachusetts General Hospital and Brigham and Women's Hospitals, which are Harvard hospitals, recently organizing a house staff union. So we'll talk about the advantages and disadvantages and whether we as you know, non-trainee doctors should also be doing that. So please be sure to tune into that episode. Also be sure to write in with any comments, questions, or reactions that you have to any of our episodes. Please subscribe and follow us wherever you get podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please be sure to review us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Until next time, signing off from the heart of medicine. This podcast is sponsored by Asperion Therapeutics. Asperion Therapeutics, providing the next step in getting patients to their LDL cholesterol goal. Visit www.asperionscience.com to learn more.